I dig for information about how people got over, how people got through challenges and situations, especially oppression. So I've been reading my James Baldwin lately. I went and saw I Am Not Your Negro and I'm trying to find a way to go see it again as soon as possible. Because the more I, the more I feel like everything we're facing is new, the more I'm reminded that it is not. And one of the things that I, as a psychiatrist, have worked on with my patients who have had traumatic experiences is I help them figure out their story because putting words to experiences is healing. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Tipping on the Tightrope, putting words to experiences and healing with our guest, psychiatrist, co-founder of the Thrive Mindfulness Project, Dr. Corinne Glover. First, the news. When you get elevated, they love it or they hate it. You dance up on them haters, keep your info key on the scene while they jump and roll you. They trying to take all of your dreams, but you can't allow it. Cause baby, whether you're high or low, whether you're high or low, you got to chip on the title. Dr. Corinne Glover has spent her life following her interests. From a career in publishing, she followed her curiosity about medicine to medical school. A professor of psychiatry at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Dr. Glover is also co-founder of the Thrive Mindfulness Project. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We are delighted to have you, and especially at this period of time. You know, when I thought about doing this show, I very much had in mind what is going on in the United States politically and how people are receiving it, how they are feeling about it. And I was looking forward to this conversation to talk about it both on the level of the individuals and also because of your work with leadership, what that means at this time, what the needs are, both from our leadership point of view and from our individual point of view. So let's start with just the work that you do, Thrive Mindfulness Leadership. What is it? So it's a project with a a good friend of mine and a very well-respected child and adolescent psychiatrist, Ava Gaiman-Dooms. And our work focuses on helping professionals deal better with the stressors they face on their, in their day-to-day work life, but also approaching and learning to approach events in their personal lives and in their day-to-day lives with a spirit of grace, open-mindedness, and creativity. And we're teaching people how to do this through mindfulness techniques. Mindfulness techniques. What does that really mean? Sure. So mindfulness is based in lots of ways on what is basic and inherent to most religious traditions, uh, except mindfulness is not a religious tradition, but it is based on the techniques of learning to become still, still, learning to calm and soothe oneself and maintaining a moment to moment awareness of what's happening to avoid getting overwhelmed by situations, by problems, by people. So that one can approach situations again with greater creativity, uh, with greater calm and a sense of an open mind and And, open heart. And when did you begin the Thrive Mindfulness Project? Ava and I started the project in 2014. I had always, and she had, and I hadn't known this about her, that she had been interested in meditation uh, techniques. And I was raised uh, by hippies. So (laughs) I had always known about yoga and meditation and had been practicing for years. And it's not something I ever talked about with anyone really. And One day we were on the phone and she said, you know, I have an idea. I'd love to integrate mindfulness techniques into my practice with my patients. And that's something that I had been doing already. And then she said, but what if we start doing this for busy professionals? Because in many ways they're quite healthy, 
but they could use an extra boost, an extra skill set when it comes to um, to getting through their day. So this practice then goes beyond the current period of time. This is this is a practice. Well, I'm not sure when as African Americans our history and our day-to-day lives were ever calm. Mm. So I'm not going to to go there, but it did happen before you decided on this before the current political climate that we're experiencing now. Yes, absolutely. And what was the response to your clients and patients to this? Well, we got a lot of great feedback. We started talking with our friends who were working in corporate settings and uh, friends who were teachers and the varying um, professional backgrounds. And we got a huge uh, amount of openness from them regarding what we were sharing. So when I would go and be asked to give a talk, on mental health for a women's group for the links, for instance, or at St. Paul's Community Baptist Church in Brooklyn, they would say, you know, thank you for all this information on mental health. Are you going to teach us how to calm down and relax and work through our stress? (laughs) And so I realized that I had to start actually teaching techniques to people. And, And we're not talking about, you know, sitting on a mountaintop somewhere in the Himalayas. We're talking about how to get through traffic on the BQE or on the Beltway or wherever you are, because people want to be able to apply these skills in lots of different settings, because stress happens everywhere. Stress happens everywhere. And when, obviously, you're not going to tell me about individual patients, but for the patients that with whom you have interacted, what are the stresses that people are most feeling? So... For my patients, I so I have been working for several years in the South Bronx, which is the poorest congressional district in the United States. Wow. So I've introduced mindfulness there. I've in, and I've worked and taught mindfulness for professionals on Fifth Avenue and in the, the publishing industry in Manhattan. So I've done it in lots of places. And one of the One of the things that I find the most encouraging as far as feedback goes is when somebody says, I think I know how to do this myself now. I had no idea I could do this, but I can do this for myself and I will teach other people how to do this. How did you teach yourself? I learned from my, from my father. And then also in, in high school, I had teachers who taught in, in mind, I'm sorry, in gym class in PE, Uh, I had one teacher who would teach us yoga and then we would have a meditation at the end. And then I started, and then I went to meditation classes when I was in college. And then I took dance class in Harlem. There's a wonderful dance teacher named Nafisa Sharif. And before she teaches every class, she starts with a meditation and she ends with a meditation. So there's this wonderful um, current of, of relaxation, of self-care that has run through my life, certainly, and, and runs through very public settings, actually, if you know where to look for it. And so I have taken advantage of that and tried to share that as much as possible with people. That little caveat that you put in there, if you know where to look for it, because I was about to say, okay, I lived in the Bronx. I went to college in in the New York area. (laughs) I worked in publishing. I took dance classes. I've been to, you know, raised in a church. No one ever talked to me about mindfulness. In fact, what they would, what I heard um, was not only the absence of it, but the complete negation of it. So where do we look for it? So I think, I will say, I think times are changing. And I think there's much, um, much greater openness about uh, the way people pray and the way that people meditate. 
and even the way people make it through stressful situations. I think there was a time in our culture and, and, and even in the dominant culture where it was not okay to talk about your struggles. And, but I think times are changing so that people are starting to open up about their, their stressors and how they've confronted them or even didn't confront them and ended up having a worse uh, symptoms even later. So to your question, uh, over time, I think what people used to call just being still uh, is now being broken down into and called mindfulness and mindful breathing and abdominal breathing and pausing, you know, in between tasks to refocus and things like that. So there's a much greater vocabulary for some of this stuff than there was 10 or 20 years ago. So start us out on the path. Where so, do we begin? I, I think I start off most of my patients and most of my clients with, or even attendees at some of my speaking engagements, I start them off with learning to pay attention to their breath and putting down whatever they're working on, whatever they're fidgeting with, finding a comfortable space. And I mean, they can be in the car, they can be driving, but the idea is to focus your brain, not on all the busy thoughts that are running through your mind, but simply with what's in front of you. Some people think you have to close your eyes in order to, to find a sense of peace. Other people find closing their eyes terrifying. They want to keep their eyes open. They want to stay focused. But the idea is to focus on how your body feels, asking yourself what's happening to me right now, and then looking at what's going on around you, but with a sense of of appreciating the slowness, appreciating the bodily sensations that are happening. And by practicing that, it leads to a greater ability to focus and concentrate. So this is our mini session. And we are me as a person here in studio, others listening to us, we're concentrating on our breath. In my case, my eyes are closed and it kind of not shuts out, but brings me in to do the things that you are suggesting I do in terms of paying attention. So what's next? So I like to do a body scan, right? If the person is, is driving, then that's one, there's one way to do that. And we can go over that too. But if the person is in a place where they can sit quietly for a moment, they can be at their desk, for instance, the idea is to pay attention starting at the bottom of your feet and bring your attention to what your feet feel like. You may notice the sensation of your toes against your socks, what they feel like inside of your shoes, and then gradually bring your attention further up to your ankles and your legs, feeling the, the, the clothing against your skin, noticing whether there's a cramp somewhere, and focusing on whatever is true for you, whatever bodily sensations you're having, what Corinne's voice sounds like, noticing, well, I just had a thought that was totally out of the blue and letting that thought pass and coming back to what the body feels like. From there, I bring my attention up to my hips, what they feel like sitting in my chair the feeling the weight of my body against the chair and noticing that it's supporting me right back. I bring my attention to my abdomen and I focus on what my abdomen feels like. Bloated, maybe I sense some sounds or I can feel some bubbles bubbling. Mm -hmm. And then bringing my attention further up to my chest. Sometimes I'll place my hand over my heart and feel what that what the beating of my heart feels like. I'll notice the rise and fall of my chest. I'll bring my attention further up to my neck and my back. I'll notice my posture. I may readjust my posture if I need to and so forth. I bring my attention up to my jaw. Many of us carry lots of tension in our jaw. We're smiling all the time or laughing, but sometimes we just need to let our jaw hang for a moment. I notice whether my nostrils are flared, whether my, my brow is furrowed and wrinkled. And I try to take a deep breath in 
and let some of those muscles relax. Maybe my shoulders are up to my ears because I'm stressed out walking around the city and hearing the clatter of the subway and things. But I try to take a moment and let my shoulders know they don't have to rise to my ear level. They can, they can rest where they are. And by doing that, by focusing on that and then also bringing my attention to my breath, I try to focus on what the, what the air feels like going into my nostrils, what it feels like when it hits my throat, whether my mouth is dry, things like that. And by doing that and checking in with ourselves routinely throughout the day, it gives our mind and our body a chance to not be overwhelmed by what's happening around us. We skinned our knees Picking sour apples from an old apple tree We waved away bees and did as we pleased Many years ago we're speaking with our guest, Dr. Corinne Glover. We'll be back in a moment. A few cars were there to pollute the air In a small town like ours You could walk everywhere No burdens to bear We hadn't a care Many years ago Many years ago Do you remember The glass candy case At Miss Cassie's store We're back with my guest, Dr. Corinne Glover. In fact, that is a perfect opportunity for me to ask you about the spelling of your name and the pronunciation of your name. K-A-R-I-N-N-G-L-O-V-E-R. Is there a specific um, significance to the way you spell your name, Corinne? Yes. So my... Mother, when she was pregnant with me, wanted to name me after my father's mother. Her name was Catherine with a K. Unfortunately, Catherine died before I was born. But and as a family with roots in the Gullah regions of South Carolina, the Sea Islands, we pay attention to our dreams. So my mother had a dream that my grandmother, my father's mother, came to her and said, look, do not name her Catherine. I want you to name her Corinne. And so my mother said, well, how do you want me to spell it? And she said, I don't know. You have to figure that out yourself. So they knew that they were supposed to name me Corinne, but they kept the K. So usually Corinne is spelled C-O-R-I-N-N-E. Yes. But they knew they had to spell it with a K. And my mother being the teacher that she is, she came up with a phonetically correct way of spelling Corinne that she thought would satisfy my deceased grandmother and herself. That's a lovely story. <laughs> it really is. And so is your family from the Sea Island, from the Gullah area? Yes, my mother's side of the family is. Do you know how far back they actually go in that area? Oh, goodness, forever. That's So my understanding is that 
they that after coming from Africa, they have some spent some time in Barbados or the Bahamas. Nobody mm-hmm. is quite sure. Barbados was were, was a, a to use a horrible term, but the right image. It was like a slave farm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and that's where Africans were brought to be right, quote unquote seasoned mm-hmm. before they were brought to the, uh, before they were brought to uh, the United States. So the idea was break their spirits, break them psychically in the Caribbean and then send them to the United States or to the colonies. So my understanding, and this is family legend, was that Our family came from the Sierra Leone, Liberia area, and then were brought to the Caribbean, and then were brought to places like James Island, Johns Island, Wadmalo Island, off the coast of uh, South Carolina. This history is very interesting, and to me personally, um, because I've I spent a good deal of time on the board of the Amistad America, which Mm. created... um, which is the organization that grew around telling the story of the Amistad and that Amistad rebellion at sea by building a replica vessel mm. in in linking with people in Sierra Leone, so mm. the area that you're coming from. The people in Freetown decided to fell the oldest tree in the town because it was standing when the Amistad captives left. Mm. And when they did that, they sent the wood from that tree to the United States. It is now, that wood is very much part of the Amistad America, the actual vessel, and each of us were given a piece of that wood, a piece of that tree, who Mm. were part of that board. So when you speak about Sierra Leone and mm-hmm. your possible ancestry in Sierra Leone, it, it, it strikes a major chord with me. And it also raises so many issues of, of what that means. Your parents spent some time on the continent, didn't they? Yes, they. So my father, the first trip that they went on to Africa was for Festac in 1970. My father, who is a musician, was invited to play uh, during that festival. And that was sort of a very formative experience for both of them, because five years later, my mother started a nonprofit organization to take students and other community members to Africa every year, at least once a year, so that they could connect with their cultural origins. That's extraordinary. And as we're talking, I'm I'm hearing other things, other points of intersection, because my husband had performed at Festac. And so I absolutely know that that was this amazing international festival of African, African diaspora and arts and culture. A lot did come from that. Um, Malcolm X had died not long before. And one of his last public events was with young people that he encouraged Fannie Lou Hamer to bring from Mississippi to New York to visit with him and the young people in his area. And his main conversation was about how they need to travel, see other parts of the world, connect with the continent and realize that the problems are the same and that we are not alone. And where one group is feeling it, it has repercussions here and it has solutions here for that group and solutions there for those young people who had come from Mississippi to mm-hmm. to um, New York. So in all of that, I, I hear your mother not only hearing the ans- her her family in mm-hmm. terms of the ancestral but in terms of the larger the political as well and she knew that she had to carry that forward so Absolutely. what yeah. is she doing now my mother teaches at Lehman College in the Bronx and what does she teach 
uh, African-American education and history. Wow. And your father? He is a retired uh, musician. He also uh, spent 30 years working with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Uh, so he, he's been able to be a healer on multiple fronts, as well as my mom. So this work sounds as though it's kind of in your DNA. It absolutely is. You know, like you, you don't actually have to go for psychotherapy to, to recognize how you got to be who you are. Uh, it's helpful, though. Um, but <laughs> I, I certainly do recognize that my um, activism, my education, my the spirit of my work is very much imbued with the cultural lessons that I was raised with. And part of that is, you know, if you have a sense of your heritage, you can use the lessons of your culture to understand what is happening around you currently. And you can use it for to, to become a stronger person and to also heal from the wounds that have been inflicted on your people. I hear that. So if we are looking at that awareness, especially as we tape this, it is the end of Black History Month. Looking at that larger awareness, what strikes you these days? Uh, lots of things. I mean, I am always on the prowl for ways to help myself and other people get through challenging situations. So I'm really, I dig uh, for information about how people got over, how people got through challenges and situations especially oppression. So I've been reading my James Baldwin lately. I went and saw I Am Not Your Negro and I'm trying to find a way to go see it again as soon as possible. Because the more I, the more I feel like everything we're facing is new, the more I'm reminded that it is not. Excuse me, just to interject, I Am Not Your Negro. That's the documentary that's just come out about the life and work of James Baldwin. Absolutely. It's directed by Raul Peck and it's phenomenal. It's, it's so, I mean, it's easy to forget because, you know, we don't see James Baldwin on television anymore. And so it's easy to forget that, that the man was brilliant and eloquent. And one of the things that I, as a psychiatrist, uh, have worked on with my patients who have had any number of traumatic experiences is I help them figure out their story. I help them put together their narrative, because putting words to experiences is healing. It's not the only way to heal, but it's one way, and it's certainly part of the path. James Baldwin is so eloquent. It's divine the way he is able to put together and help us understand what we are seeing in the past and in the present. Is there some moment in his writing that strikes you that's most appropriate for what you're saying? Oh my goodness. When, when James Baldwin said, first of all, I am, I'm going to use the N word. Well, he says, I am not the N word. No, we we can say it. I, I'm, oh, okay. I am not a person who uses it in the pejorative. I think you're doing someone else's job to damage yourself when you do that. But I am a person who who acknowledges its history and yeah. unfortunately its legacy. So I would I would urge you to speak the truth of the word that you're speaking about. Well, so Baldwin says, why does America need a nigger? And that's the question. Once you figure out why that why this being is conjured up and created and perpetuated and projected onto people, then you've answered major questions about what we're facing as a people. And so for me, when I, when I saw the promo for the movie, and then when I saw the movie and I saw the greater context in which he was speaking, it just kind of, it just took my breath away really, because Part of, again, what I've learned as a psychiatrist is that often when we find something intolerable about ourselves, we project it on to other people because God help us if we actually recognize that we've got dualities, we've got our own internal polarities and things. We'd much, it's much easier to just say those other people are like that. 
And why do those other people need a nigger? Oh. More with our guest, Dr. Corinne Glover, psychiatrist, co-founder of the Thrive Mindfulness Project. After the break, I'm Janice Adams. Here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dr. Corinne Glover, psychiatrist, co-founder of the Thrive Mindfulness Project. Before the break, we were talking about the society's need for an underdog, specifically picking up on the question asked by James Baldwin and captured in the new documentary about his life and work as an author and activist. Why does America need a nigger? I mean, I think sometimes we all want a scapegoat. We want to be able to blame somebody for what is actually just regular human behavior when they are put under certain social circumstances, legal circumstances. So the idea is to to really legitimize the maltreatment of people um, in our own personal lives and then on in a larger context. And conversely, I don't think anyone chooses to be that, but some people may want to say, well, then why do people want to act like that? Why do people want to be remain that? Why do they associate with that in their own behavior? So there is an outstanding book. Um, it is, it's, it's about a stereotype threat and the author, I want to say his name is, uh, last name is Steele, uh, S-T-E-E-L-E. And he talks a lot about how stereotypes are imposed on, on people. Here's Dr. Claude Steele speaking about his book on stereotyping, Whistling Vivaldi. The title of the book that I've, I've written about this is Whistling Vivaldi, and it's taken from a story of an African-American, uh, he's, he's now an editorialist for the New York Times, Brent Staples, uh, large African-American guy, and when he was, uh, showed up for graduate school at the University of Chicago years ago, and walks down the street dressed like a student and so on, he realizes that uh, he's making whites uncomfortable, and they're avoiding eye contact and sometimes even crossing the street to stay out of his way, um, and he realizes from their behavior that they're seeing him stereotypically. They're thinking of him as a possibly menacing African-American male on the south side of Chicago, and they're apprehensive, and they're moving away from him. So he's being seen through the lens of that stereotype. There, there's a huge social impact there of a, uh, on, on him, and it's depressing to him. And he writes about this in his, his autobiography. Um, he eventually learns a little simple tactic which is that as he walks down the street, if he whistles Beatles tunes and whistles Vivaldi, then he's seen completely differently. He's just seen as a, as a, uh, a black graduate student at the University of Chicago and not as uh, a potentially menacing guy. So with, the, with that behavior, it, it punctures uh, the stereotype. It makes the people in his environment not use that stereotype uh, uh, in, in viewing him. The idea of stereotype threat is the, the very simple idea that um, if you're trying to perform in an area where your group is negatively stereotyped, you're going to feel an extra pressure, a distracting kind of pressure. Uh, and that pressure can affect how well you perform. Uh, if you don't know about it and you don't know how to deal, deal with it, it can have this kind of effect. And, and that, that is a, a source of this underperformance. And they're not even aware of it, right? But that when they're in situations where they have the opportunity to behave in multiple ways, they choose the way, unconsciously, that conforms to stereotype. Or do they, do they become what they have been 
told that they are and then they do so? Do they have other images of who they might otherwise be? Oh, absolutely. And I asked the question in the context, I remember getting a really poignant letter from a white woman married to a black man who was talking about her son's growing up calling themselves that word at this point. And she found it offensive, but she said, but I don't know what to do because their grandfather uses that term. And he uses it about himself. And we had a conversation about that. And ultimately, I suggested to her that maybe she have a conversation with her sons about how they see themselves, about their relationship to President Obama at that time, to Colin Powell at that time. Do they imagine in their wildest moments either of those two men calling themselves that word? And she did that. And of course, no, they did not. They could not in their wildest. And so we talked about how to honor their grandfather and understand the life that he had lived and was forced to live, um, and then how they could respect their grandfather. And because he lived that life, because he was forced to live that life, but because he was a wonderful grandfather, how they're not living that life was actually a tribute to that grandfather. Mm, beautiful lesson. Well, you know, something that, thank you, but something that I'm thinking about as you was thinking about, as you said it, was to use a concrete example of what we're talking about when you say, why does someone need a nigger? I've long thought about the situation of Rosa Parks on that bus. And the whole issue, why did this country why did white people in America need to make sure that a bus would be such an, a discomforting place? Why did they need Rosa Parks and everyone else to be so inconvenienced? And the truth of that day that we don't talk about is that that bus was nearly empty when she got on. She did sit towards the back of the bus and he sat in the row that she was in when there were other empty seats all around the bus. And he and the bus driver made this issue about her having to get up and move. And I found that interesting because this is the land where people pride themselves on such grandiose male chivalry. Why did two grown men need an older black woman to get up and move for them? That's one question. It's a country also that likes to talk about, you know, it being such a such exceptionalism as a black person. There's, I don't see anything exceptional about this kind of behavior. So when Rosa Parks says no, she will not get up. It's also interesting when people talk about black people wanting special treatment. No, she wanted an end to the special treatment of racism and segregation. That's what she wanted. Mm -hmm. So when you ask this question, why do people need a nigger? Why did they need, why did those two men need her to get out of that seat, even though there were empty seats all around her, in front of her for the white people and in back? There's so many levels to this. It's, it, it is um, one of the things that, that boggles my mind because one of the ways that I think, and I've spent, I've been in South Africa twice now, and I, I could spend days in the Apartheid Museum and in the Hector Peterson Museum, because you, for me, the take home was, we've got to keep people separate 
uh, and unequal. And we need for that idea to permeate every part of their lives. And in order for us to maintain power, we need for people to follow these rules and know that they cannot be in the same places as we are. And I, I, when I think of how those power structures are maintained, and then also when they're dismantled, that for the person with privilege, equality feels like discrimination when they start to lose their, their privilege. So uh, that's something that has stayed on my mind a lot. That's a very interesting point, because added to the Rosa Parks story that we were just talking about, Sojourner Truth had fought that bus battle in mm. Washington, D.C., almost a century earlier at mm. the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She had had a court case against the buses. So why, a hundred years later, did Rosa Parks have to fight that same battle? Yeah. You know? And yeah. in that context, here we are in the times in which we're now living, and people want to put these restrictions on the black body again. We have police who want to kill for whatever reason. And many of them will say they feel threatened, but we have never really asked. After they use that word, we cut off the questions. We don't ask, what is it that you're feeling threatened about in the face of someone who is unarmed, in one case running away from you, not bothering you, in another selling loose cigarettes for which he gets the death penalty? What is it that you that threatens you so? What say you? I I wish I had I wish I had answers. One thing that uh, I talked about in a community policing event that was uh, in Harlem, it was attended by members of the community and members of the police department. We talked about what it's like for officers to, uh, when their system sort of goes into overdrive and facing potentially dangerous situations. And this is uh, in some ways a very human response that we tend to overestimate the danger. We overestimate the size of our enemy. We overestimate the potential for danger in many situations. And with stress hormones coursing through our blood, we are prone, humans are prone to making mistakes. Add that on top of of decades of witnessing stereotypes and being fed images of black and brown people as dangerous, as unworthy, as lazy, as aggressive. It's a terrible, terrible combination to then sort of, uh, to then become weaponized essentially. So it's one of the, I think one of the scariest parts of of navigating these times as as a brown person. It's constantly gauging the risk that one is in at any given time, especially when you know your history and you know that like that some of this stuff is unpredictable and out of your control. That's the definition of trauma. You open this section talking about James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the statement that you quoted, I am not your nigger, I am not your Negro, he mm-hmm. also had a phrase, if I am not who you say I am, then you are not who you think you are. And it strikes me that with the overwhelming increase, the ratcheting up in these police shootings that happened during the era of Obama, how many of those officers responding to their own cultural training, needs, fears, that all of a sudden, here were a group of people. You talked about the loss of privilege feeling as discrimination, the loss of privilege feeling as a threat. Here they are confronting 
those people who are no longer who they say they are and how does that make them feel? You know, I think one of the, the hardest things uh, for me as a psychiatrist is to wrap my mind around current events and, and try to withhold my clinical training and try to uh, function as a, as a non-judgmental citizen. And it's a, it's a struggle. So I have never had an officer as a, as a client or a patient, but I do know that part of the work that's being done in New York City now is about uncovering bias. It's about dealing with your people's own implicit bias because we know that people's lives are at stake. So I think somewhere in the popular wisdom is the sense that we need to address some of the unconscious processes that go into rapid decision-making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And perhaps screening people before they get the badge and the gun. You know, I wish I knew more about that process yes. and, and what happens, because it, it definitely seems like for, for anybody, whether it's this quiet bias against women, a quiet bias against rape victims, a bias, I mean, all of us have biases. It's human to have them. But again, who suffers? I think all of us suffer in one way or another, but who loses their lives, who ends up with the trauma, things like that. It, it's on all of us, especially the person uh, in, in the professional role to, to make sure that they are as bias free as possible. I'm glad that you repeated the phrase, a quiet bias, because when I first heard you say it, it was interesting. I heard acquired bias. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, um, but whether quiet or acquired, um, the, the whole issue that your work really raises is we can't, we don't know what we can do about other people. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We would wish them all healing we, because then maybe people would not feel so angry mm-hmm. about others and act upon it. We would wish people healing because they are so wounded that they are not enjoying the fulfillment of their lives. But we can't necessarily change that for them. So the question becomes your work and what you're doing in helping us achieve it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I hope um, that my work does some of what you just outlined. That is my goal, certainly. It's to help people become more in touch. And in psychiatry and in, in therapy, we call it mentalization. Essentially, it's the ability to connect one's feeling states, literally what your body feels like, what thought, and connect those to what thoughts are running through your mind, and then to connect those with what actions you take. So mentalization is part of mindfulness. It's part of good psychotherapy because all of us have automatic thoughts and it's those automatic thoughts that tend to guide our behavior more than anything. I think James Baldwin said, it's actually not what you remember that guides your behavior, it's what you forget that guides your behavior. James Baldwin would have made a fantastic psychiatrist in my opinion. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of literary people do because um, for instance, part of my work is to help people, um, it's to help people connect those thoughts with their actions. So somebody, a parent has their 11 year old kid come home, slam the door, and cross their arms, sit down, and put their feet on the kitchen table. Now, one parent would smack that kid in the back of the head and say, you know you're not supposed to put your feet on the table. Another parent would look at that kid and say, this is not your normal self. You look angry. What happened today? Right? And it's by helping that child, or or in my case, helping the child or the adult, uh, since I, I see adults, but helping them connect their thoughts 
with their behaviors so that they can change their actions. So hopefully one of the things that I can help do in my life is help people get in touch with what's going on with them before they hurt people, before they hurt themselves. And to not only use that uh, consciousness and, and raised consciousness so that they can live a life that is happier and healthier and more productive and more enjoyable and creative. Thank you. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. This has been great. During the program, we've been speaking about author James Baldwin. We close today's show with the trailer of the new film about his work, I Am Not Your Negro. If any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. Most of the white Americans I've ever encountered surely have nothing whatever against Negroes. That's really not the question. Really a kind of apathy and ignorance. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. In America, I was free only in battle, never free to rest. We need to take action, any kind of action, by any means necessary. They needed us to pick the cotton, and now they don't need us anymore. Now they don't need us, they're going to kill us all off. There are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, is why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger, I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. And you gotta find out why. And the future of the country depends on that. Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest has been psychiatrist and co-founder of the Thrive Mindfulness Project, Dr. Corinne Glover. For more about today's show, links to her website, Dr. Steele's work on stereotypes, and the James Baldwin documentary, please visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, I thanks to our guest and to you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. Mm-hmm.